All right, Daniel. Boy, do I need prayer for this one. It's big and powerful and wonderful and awesome all at the same time, isn't it? What the Lord has done through this book. So let's pray. Lord, we come here uh, this morning and uh, I need your help and we need your help as we want to see what this says and understand what this says and uh, have a working knowledge of the book of Daniel. And uh, help us here, Lord, uh, because this is powerful in so many ways. And so uh, we ask that you would uh, bless our time by your spirit in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen. Now listen, before we begin on the back table, you don't have to get it now, but we've had this here. Here's a list of the kings and the prophets that are associated with the kings. And I would highly suggest you grab this. Now this is the one that's all fancy. There's actually my chicken scratch somewhere. I didn't see it back there. It's the way I remember it. It's literally off the back of my journal. That's how I do things, folks. I'm not very organized, okay? So if you want my chicken scratch, uh, we can get that to you as well. But here's a chronological timeline of the kings and prophets. And that's going to help you here today uh, because Daniel is a book that was written in the 6th century, 6th century B.C. Now, before we go anywhere, we need to take a time out right after saying that. Uh, How do we know uh, it's 6th century? Well, that's where this comes in. Uh, Because in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now, if you come on Wednesday nights, you're tired of me saying this. I totally understand it, especially the Reynolds, because they make fun of me at home. I heard about this. And that's this reason. I'm going to pound into your head these three series of dates. There's actually five dates or six dates. See, I can't even do math, but here they go. Okay, do you guys know that the story of the Old Testament is the story of the tribes of the people of Israel? And how many tribes were there? Twelve. And there were twelve tribes. And in 931 BC, write it down, Where's everybody, what's going on here? I don't see anybody writing it down. In 931 BC, that kingdom split. This united kingdom became a divided kingdom. That's really important. It was right after the death of Solomon, a wise king. And two people, we'll we'll, we'll talk about that later. But anyway, getting a sort of a tug of war with all their different factions. And the kingdom splits. And there's 10 northern tribes that... Go north. Wow, even I can remember that. And two southern tribes, and guess where they go? South. The two southern tribes are Judah and Benjamin. So often, the southern tribes are called Judah. And the northern tribes, interestingly enough, are called Israel most of the time in the Bible. But that's kind of confusing because you go, well, wait a minute. Is Israel 12 tribes or 10 tribes? Well, yes. The answer is yes. But mostly when we're going through the prophets and that sort of thing, after 931 BC, when we're thinking of Israel, we're thinking of the 10 northern northern tribes. And a world power that's on the scene at the time is a kingdom called Assyria. Assyria. Sort of all the way over there. Uh, You know, if you go on your map off to the right, I probably should have had a map, but oh well, community got in the way. You can look it up. By the way, I have a Bible atlas over here. If there's another book to put in your Bible study learning, you come up and see me after this Bible atlas, greatest thing you could have, okay? I actually got it in the Garden Tomb bookstore. (laughs) Can you believe there's a Garden Tomb bookstore? But anyway, our guide said this is the best Bible atlas you could ever get. I'm telling you, it is amazing. So you can see that uh, in a minute. But it'll show you where that area is that the Assyrians dominate. So the Assyrians are the number one world power at this time, okay? And so here comes date number two, date number two, 722 BC, write it down. Oh, look at everybody, amazing. It's just like at home, everybody does what we say, good. 722 BC, you gotta know it, because what happened in 722 BC? In much of the Old Testament, 
it plays out that the Assyrians came and grabbed those 10 northern tribes and took them away. 722 BC, the Assyrians come down, take out the 10 northern tribes, Israel. And now you're going to learn three more dates. So how many is that? Five. I was right. Can you believe that? You're going to learn three more dates, but the most important of the dates is the last date. If you only knew three dates of the Bible in the Old Testament, this would help you navigate lots of the Old Testament. It's 931 BC, 722 BC, and the third date, although I'm going to have to sort of give you a caveat, we'll do that in a minute, is 586 BC. Write that down. Because what happens around 600, it actually happened in May of 605, the Assyrians go off the scene and there's two competing superpowers. Their names are Babylon and Egypt. And guess what is right between Babylon and Egypt? Israel, Israel and Judah, they're right between. And anybody that's a world power, look at this, man, we're so amazing. Uh, anybody that's a world power wants to have the area of uh, the Mediterranean Sea there on the coast, why? Of course you know why, because of ports and travel and all that sort of thing. So Babylon from the north, Egypt from the south, and in May, listen to this, May 605 BC, they battle at a place called Carchemish, and guess who wins? The Babylonians. And as part of that, in 605 BC, right after the victory, the king Nebuchadnezzar orders his troops to go down towards the coast in Israel or Judah area and to take that area. And so they go down there and um, Nebuchadnezzar sort of likes what he sees. So remember, we got three dates, 931, 722, and 586. But 586 actually has two other dates because here's why. In 605 BC, right after the Battle of Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar goes down there and something happens in his family and somebody dies and he needs to run out real quick. But before he runs out, in 605 BC, three things, three dates associated with 586, 605 BC, 597 BC, and 586 BC. And I've thoroughly confused you. I get it. But if you remember those dates in your head, you're going to unlock much of the Old Testament for yourself. It's going to be amazing. So here's, here, I'm going to do it again. 931 BC, the divided kingdom. 722 BC, Assyria comes and takes out the northern tribes. And then something happens in 605 BC. The Babylonians defeat Egypt, the world superpowers at the time. And now Babylon, watch this three entries into the area of Jerusalem in three waves, 605 BC, 597 BC, and 586 BC, and I see all your eyes glazed over. But don't let it be glazed over, because if you know this, you're going to know the story better, and it's going to help you, because here's why. Daniel is a story of both a devotion to God and prophecy that God laid out so that we could know history that's coming and has already come. But wait a minute, hold on, hold on, before we stop. Because some people stop right there. And history that's yet to unfold. And it's powerful. And here's why it's powerful. The Bible tells us that if you know prophecy or the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's a purifying doctrine. In other words, if you have that in mind and you live in the light of the fact that there's a program that Jesus is coming back, that God has set forth that his son's coming back as judge, and he's going to set up his kingdom on the world, it does something to you how you live in 2022 in little West Elizabeth, PA, or wherever you live. You get it? This is a purifying doctrine. Now, <clears throat> some people shy away from the book of Daniel. Some people don't even want to deal with it. You know why they don't want to deal with it? Because there's several different views of Daniel. 
Okay, several different views, and they don't want to get locked in the controversy and talk about it, and they don't want you sending the pastor emails, and they don't want to broach it. So what they do is they just ignore it. And that's what people do with much of prophecy. But see, here's the problem with that. One quarter of your Bible is prophecy. So what are you to do? Are you to pick and choose what you study and know? Are you to learn the whole counsel of God? I think you know the answer if you're honest with yourself. We're to learn the whole counsel of God. I just watched, I just saw on CNN two weeks ago, there are these people that are gaining, gaining attention on TikTok or whatever it is that they go on. Uh, and what they're saying is they've been uh, hurt by the evangelical church and its emphasis on the rapture and end times. And it's like they describe their symptoms as PTSD. And all I can say to you is this. Listen, and I'm saying this in a really sensitive and loving manner. I want to tell you the truth, and I don't want any of us that are sitting in here to spend (laughs) an eternity in hell. And it's almost like it's the uh, attack of the enemy, and it's like the sideways attack. Well, if I can't meet them head on, Well, I'll come in the side door and be amongst them. And we'll get this thing going out in the world that says, you don't pay attention to prophecy, just ignore it. And if the pastor brings it up, buck the system and just tell him to quit. But it's not the whole counsel of God. And so we're going to take it. Uh, We're going to review it. Uh, We don't make any apologies for it. We know that other people have different interpretations of the Bible. There's several set, but we are a futurist church. We believe in the future, literal uh, establishment of a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ when he comes back to the earth. And, And anyway, that's who we are. And we believe the scriptures teach it. So there's another part that you should know, and that's this, is that this book and what they describe or what it describes in terms of what was coming in the 100s BC, you get it? You understand what I'm saying? Daniel lived during the 600s BC and then almost all of the 500s BC, and if you didn't know this, because I didn't know this when I started reading the Bible, or maybe I did, I don't know, but it always confused me. Before Christ, we're going towards zero. (laughs) I never knew that. After Christ, we're going up, we're ascending. Before Christ, we're descending in years. After Christ, we're ascending. Anyway, Daniel lived in the 600s and 500s, and The prophecy was so predictive about the history in the period between 100 B.C. and 200 B.C. that critics of the Bible started slamming it. It couldn't be this perfectly predictive. It had to have been that somebody wrote this after the events that unfolded in 100 to 200 B.C. happened. You get it? Because we're going to see here in a minute that uh, uh, these, or see here in a minute, see here over the course of uh, several weeks here that this uh, book is talking about the establishments of kingdoms. In fact, here's some of the kingdoms, or here are the kingdoms you're going to know about when you get done with the book of Daniel. Want to write it down? It's this, Babylon. It's called the head of gold and uh, winged lion. And then Media Persia or the Medes and Persians. And then Greece. And then Rome. And then this Antichrist kingdom that he tries to set up. And then, of course, the kingdom of Christ and the millennial reign. And so this book, in one way, is the study of the book of kingdoms. But it was so predictive that it started receiving high, high criticism. High criticism. 
But what's interesting about this, and I'm just going to give you two little snippets, and then I want you to be, do something for me. I want you to be a Berean, and you can go and study this thing and determine for yourself, was Daniel written in the 6th century BC, or was it written sometime after the events of 100 to 200 BC unfolded? You can go and study this, but let me just give you two. And actually three. The third one salts it. But here's the first one. Do you know the Septuagint was written in 285 BC? Listen to what I just said. The Septuagint was written around 280, 285 BC. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, I'm not real good with math or smart, but 285 BC came before 200 BC and certainly came before 100 BC. And guess what's in the Septuagint? The book of Daniel. Here's another thing. Josephus, that Jewish extra biblical writer who went over to the Romans and was, you know, hired by them, talks about in 322 BC, and this is real history, it happened. In 322 BC, which is before 200 and before 100, you get what I'm saying? In 322 BC, Josephus says that Alex, Alexander the Great, what a great name, huh? Who, who wouldn't want to be named Alex? But anyway, Alexander the Great was coming through the Middle East, Jerusalem, and he met with the high priest. And the high priest said, oh, wow, go back and get the scrolls and let's talk about something that's in Daniel. He met with Alexandria and he ordered or opened up the book of Daniel and showed Alexander the Great where Alexander the Great fit in to the story in Daniel. That's what Josephus says. That happened in 322 BC. Those are two places that you can look uh, that, you know, are extra biblical or some evidences, but there's a million of them. And that's something you have to begin with as you study the book of Daniel. When was it written? Because if you say it was written after 100 BC, do you understand the implication? Somebody contrived this and it's simply history. It's not predictive prophecy. Are you are you tracking with me? It makes a big difference. Oh, by the way, Jesus referred to Daniel in his end times talk when he said, you see the abomination of desolation that's spoken of by the prophet Daniel. See, for me, that does it. <laughs> if Jesus said it, I believe it. Well, anyway, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that's where this comes in. You have, probably have no idea just sitting here who Jehoiakim is. He's third from the last of the kings of Judah. Judah is the northern or southern kingdom. Say it. Southern. That's exactly right. So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And you go, wow. The pastor just took 40 minutes just to do the intro, but now I know what the first verse means. You get it? You understand? It means this, that in 605 BC, after he had defeated uh, the Egyptians, he came down in Jerusalem, and now you know it. By the way, Jeremiah gives a year earlier in time but don't make that any big deal. It's not a mistake by the Bible. Certain countries counted the year in which you ascended to the reign as the year you started. Other countries didn't count that year. They counted the next year as the beginning of your reign. Do you get what I'm saying? And so that's why in Jeremiah you see the two different years. But this year, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, we know is 605 B.C., and Daniel lives until, turn with me, until uh, to the last sentence or verse of Daniel 1. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. 
That is approximately, listen to what I said, approximately 70 years later. So we think that Daniel, at the beginning of this book, and this is important, was around 14 or 15 years old, somewhere in that range. Not exactly sure, but most people believe that. And he lived approximately until he was 85 or so. Okay? Everybody tracking with me. See, I'm trying to set this up because it's going to make a lot more sense about what we're going to learn today, and that's this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And I'm so happy because you know this now. You know the story. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Now, one amazing thing that I want you to see here is that it says the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Because what you might be tempted to do is say, let me go study Jehoiakim. And if you do, if you go back into the kings, you were going to see that this guy was a waffler. He wanted to make treaties with Egypt. Why? Because Egypt was battling against Babylon, but he had previously made one with Babylon, but there was Egypt. Oh no, there's Babylon. And he just sort of went back and forth. And he was not a good king and he was really weak. And you might say to yourself, well, of course, Babylon, the great Babylon, they came and they took Jehoiakim, and you'd miss a big part of the story. And what do I mean? It says here, it wasn't that the Babylonians overpowered Jehoiakim. It said, the Lord himself gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. You see that. Now, what is one um, important theme that you need to know about in the book of Daniel. That's going to be throughout the book. And you all say it, and I say it, and we like to say it, and sometimes I don't think we know what it really means. And that's this, that God is sovereign. I like to hear people say God is on the throne. I like to say God is on the throne, but I wonder if we really know what it means. Well, let me give you some definitions. If you want to bless yourself, time out. If you want to do something amazing, just, okay, this has nothing to do with the story, or it kind of does. Do this. Go find the attributes of God and study them and look through the scriptures about the attributes of God, about his omnipresence and his omnipotence and his uh, majesty and his justice and his wrath and his love, and just go down the list. You know what I do? There's this chart on the internet that Spurgeon put together about all the um, uh, uh, characteristics or attributes of God. And if you click on the link, it gives you all the scriptures. And it can be your devotion. You could look up the scriptures and it will bless your heart so much. But anyway, time back in. That here is speaking of the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God. First of all, this is speaking of his sovereignty. Let me read you a couple definitions of the sovereignty of God so we sort of can get oriented, okay, with you? Here's one. It's the right of God to exercise his ruling power over his creation and the actual ex exercise of this right. The word hardly ever appears in Scripture. Did you know that? The word hardly ever appears in Scripture, sort of like the Trinity, but it occurs throughout the, uh, uh, the Bible. Uh, so let me, let me uh, give you some others. Uh, the fact that God is sovereign means that he has the power, the wisdom, and authority to do anything he chooses within his creation. Whether or not he actually exerts that level of control in any given circumstance is actually a, a different question. The concept of divine sovereignty 
uh, is oversimplified. We tend to assume that if God is not directly, overtly, purposely driving some event, then he's somehow not sovereign. But sovereignty, or excuse me, and, uh, but hopefully you can uh, take from that, it's that God is sovereign and that he has the power, wisdom, and authority to do anything he chooses within his creation. And here's the amazing part about God's uh, sovereignty. He takes into account the choices that we make, and he's still sovereign, including, and this is almost too hard to believe, including the choices that nations make. And he rules and overrules and reconnect or redirects even nations. And if he does it with nations, he does it with people, of course. Are you all connecting with that? is that God is sovereign. And so I want you to see something. The Lord gave the king of Judah into his hand. You might be saying to yourself, well, wait a minute. I love cowboy movies. I love, you know, war movies. I like uh, Star Wars. Maybe you do. I don't like that. But, you know, whatever. If you like Star Wars, fantastic. But always there's this good versus evil type of stuff. And we're always rooting for somebody. And don't we love it? I mean, come on. I remember coming home from the Rocky movie. Oh, I was so on fire. I was just a kid, nine years old, 10 years old, coming into my dad and saying, Dad, this movie is so awesome. Because, you know, I mean, come on, Rocky was this underdog and he just, anyway, you get it. We like the underdog to win. And I don't know if you're catching what happened here, but this little peewee, little sliver of land God's people, who God said he had a covenant with, that little sliver of land in all the world. Listen, God said, I'm going to give you over to an exile. I'm going to take you out of the land. You say, well, wow, that's weird. But did you know this in Ezekiel, who is a contemporary of Daniel? Ezekiel was older, so about 100 years earlier, than the prophecies that were written in Daniel about a hundred years earlier. Check this out. Ezekiel said this through the Lord. Ezekiel said, if you don't obey, I'm paraphrasing, God's going to come into your land and take out the princes and the people, and I'm going to put you into exile. About a hundred years earlier, and even before that, some of the uh, prophets before that had warned uh, Judah, he said Israel, had warned uh, Judah that if they did do this, that the princes and the people would be taken out and that there would be an exile. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. The little peewee little underdog who God said I made a covenant with and would never give up on, he would rather, look at this, give them over to Babylon than them continuing in their ways and being lethargic. He wanted to wake them up to the truths of God, so much so that the God of the universe, in a sense, had the articles taken out of his temple areas and put into the house of their gods. So in a worldly sense, listen to what I'm saying, in a worldly sense, it was almost as if the people were like, whew, the gods of Babylon are better than you, Lord. You get what I'm saying? He was willing to humble himself in his sovereignty, so to speak. He didn't become weaker. He's all the one true. He was willing to go through all of that to get the attention of his people. You catching that? It's amazing. Now, let me just review for you. Why did God put them into exile? Two main reasons we sang about one today. Two main reasons. One is, do you know in the Old Testament when God made uh, a deal with uh, uh, the nation of Israel, including Judah, he said this, you've got to rest. So I want you to take a Sabbath. Okay, Sabbath. Every week, take a Sabbath. By the way, folks, the Sabbath is the first day of the week. Or excuse me, the Sabbath is the last day of the week, not the first day of the week, but that's for another sermon. He also said, listen, every seventh year, I don't want you to do any planting or reaping or harvesting. 
So I never want you to do that. Uh, so every sixth year, you're going to stop at the end of the year. And the Lord said, I'll give you enough for that year plus the next year and everything will be great. And guess how many times in a span of 490 years, the Israelites obeyed that command? Zero. Which means, in a sense, that the people, including the people of Judah, robbed God of 70 years. And God said, because of that, I'm going to put you in exile. There's another reason God said he would put them in exile. It's because they were creepy crawly with idolatry. They had gotten so far into idolatry that it was just spiraling out of control. And so the Lord started warning them. If you don't turn and repent, you're going into exile. And as I said earlier, God would rather have had them go into exile and wake up than them never wake up. Wow. God pursues his people. Amazing stuff. So here it is. I don't ever want you to forget this. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God. You know that. What he's doing there is uh, he he carried them into the land of Shinar, Shinar, brought them to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. What was he doing? He was saying, our God is better than your God. We claim this. By the way, some 70 years later, you're going to see in Ezra 111, It's such a beautiful picture. Those articles come back with the people who return. You can look at it, Ezra 1, verse 11. Okay, keep going here. Then the king instructed this guy named Asphanaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish. Bring those people. Bring those people, uh, 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 but they have to be good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Now, why was he doing this? This is the way that they ruled. This is the way Babylon did their business. They would invade countries and they would sort of strip them of the best and the brightest. And what were they doing? What they were doing was they were, can you imagine, you imagine being back in Jerusalem in 605 BC and you've raised up this kid, 14 years old, 13 years old, and you know that the kid's going to go to the MIT of all religious studies and he's such a handsome young boy. I mean, my kid is going to be prom king and I'm going to be able to put him on Instagram and brag to everybody. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be so cool. And uh, wow, I mean, you know, he, he probably has a football scholarship to, you know, the best university in the country like Ohio State or something. But, uh, and, and after that, he's probably, you know, going to go and get his master's, and it's just, it's going to be amazing. He's going to take care of me. And then all of a sudden, here comes Nebuchadnezzar. And he takes out the best and the brightest. What do you think that would do at home? See, he didn't take many, very many of them. But what do you think that would do at home in Judah? We are not getting out of place. We're not going to make any waves. We don't want Nebi dipping into our house. I know my kid's not a 10, but he is a 9. And maybe he'll come for the next wave soon. What do you think that would do? It would get them to be quiet, keep the peace, not make waves. You understand that? What else was he doing? Of course what he was doing. He was putting them, as we're going to read here in a minute, on a three-year period of study to what was he trying to do? Change the way that they think. so that they could be integrated into the Babylonian culture and serve in his cabinet. I think that's what he was doing. Serve as the best and the brightest in Babylon. But the first thing, boy, was Nebuchadnezzar cunning and smart like our enemy. The first thing he said, let's do, let's change the way they think. Doesn't that sound familiar, folks? So here's what they do. They have this ability to serve in the king's palace and they're going to teach language and literature. You see, there's power in ideas. You get this? 
A.W. Tozer says, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. Here what they're doing is they're taking him from the one true and living God or taking them from the one true and living God and they're bringing them to a place that they serve many gods. Gosh. <laughs> I mean, go read today. It's going to be on TV. There's going to be people who are going to be trying or who are trying to do this to our kids now. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that the end of the that time they might serve before the king. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Beautiful names. It's fascinating to me. I don't even know where I'm going with this, but this is fascinating to me. None of you people, including me, None of us remember them by their godly names. We only remember them by their Babylonian names. Isn't that fascinating? It's like the enemy has done it to us because these names mean something. God is my judge, Daniel uh, means. And all of them, Hananiah, Mishael, they're beautiful names that talk about the care and the protection and the adoration and the worship of the one true and living God. And even today, if you didn't look down at your book, and I'm concluding myself in there, we probably wouldn't be able to spout off the Hebrew names. But boy, oh boy, do we know the, the other names. Because the chief of the eunuchs gave names. They gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar to Hananiah. Uh, he gave Shadrach to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. And you all and we all know those names, don't we? And every one of them, I could go through them with you, but you know this. All of them are talking about how uh, the Babylonian name uh, links to their gods instead of the one true and living God. You, you tracking with me? Verse... Eight. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into uh, the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why he, uh, should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age. Circle that. Then you would endanger my head before the king. So how old's Daniel? How old? 14, 15, 16, 14, you know, somewhere in there. Mid-teens, right? You agree? How and why in the world can Daniel and his friends stand up like this? Well, let's think about it. And I think the number one thing that tells you why and how Daniel could stand up under the pressures of an enemy who wanted to change their thought and their ideas and integrate them into a different system, which, by the way, seems clearly to represent to me what the world is doing to our children. How and why could Daniel and his friends stand, uh, stand up? Well, here's the first thing. Ready? Their names. What? Their names? Well, you named your name, one of your kids Beck. How in the world is your kid going to stand up? <laughs> it's not the name so much. It's the fact that the parents apparently were godly people so that these kids grew up in a 14-year, 15-year, whatever you want to call it, seminary of vibrant, dynamic Faith. You see, that's where it starts. The number one factor in kids keeping their Christian walk and witness, if you're a parent, just somehow look at yourself and point to you. And what do they want to see? What do they want to know? Well, when you study this, they don't want to know the rules. I mean, you could give them the rules. Don't do that. Do this. Don't do that. But you're not raising, folks, moral robots. If you're trying to train moral robots, you're teaching kids 
how to live by the law. And guess what's at the end of the law? Death. What you're teaching kids is grace-based parenting. You're teaching the grace of God to your kids. That's what we're to do. You, here's, how do you do it? How do you teach grace-based parents or grace-based principles and thought and the life of Christ to a kid? How do you do that? Well, here, here's the number one way. You have a dynamic, vital, vibrant faith yourself. If you're sending your kid off to a Christian school or to, and I love Christian schools, don't get mad at me. Uh, if you're sending your kid off to a Christian school in Sunday school and said, deal with them and rub magic, you know, lucky rabbit's foot, send them to back to me and they're all going to be great. You're, you're missing the point here. <laughs> the number one factor is you as the parent. It's the parent. They want to see that it's not just something on a page that you come to on Sunday and then you go home and live like hell. They want to see things like forgiveness and love and grace and affection and pursuit and interest in the kid. They don't want to just do everything that you have them do and want to do. Why can you be an expert on the Steelers or the Buckeyes or the Penguins and know all the stats and you don't even know your kid who's living in the next room. And the Bible says this, teach to them anytime, all the time, every time, every day about me. Wherever you're going, when they wake up out of bed, teach them about the Lord. When you're going down the road, teach them about the Lord. When you're Headed back to home, teach them about the Lord. When they're laying down, teach them about the Lord. And it's not just mouth speak. They see you teaching them about the Lord, and then they watch you get up in the morning, meet with the Lord, pray together, love one another, make mistakes, ask for forgiveness, and they go, whoo, that's it. There's a big debate in the church. Should I isolate my kid from all things non-Christian, well, some of the early church fathers thought you should do that. Isolate your kid from everything that could possibly harm them. Grow them up in a Christian incubator. And then when they turn 18 to 20, just set them loose. There's other people on the other side of the aisle that think, no, you shouldn't do that because what happens when they're 18 or 20 years old? They never know how they're going to live. Listen to this. Or they're never, you never know how they're going to respond out in the world. You never know, right? They've never been in it. Listen to this. Beck showed me this a couple years ago when he was, if I can find it here, when he was uh, uh, working at a Christian school and he had a curriculum. And this uh, part of his curriculum was talking about how ideas spread like viruses. And it was teaching the, the teacher and the kids and the parents how to raise a kid that won't walk away from the Lord. Don't you want a kid that won't walk away from the Lord? What is one of the things that the Bible says? Yes, what is one of the things that the Bible says we're to do in marriage, if God so chooses to put you together? To have godly children, that's one of the things. Be fruitful and multiply. Not just have children, have godly children. Well, you say, well, yeah, I know, but I've heard these stories, and I uh, have some friends. Kid goes to college, boom, loses it. First week, boom. Professor says something about evolution or about, you know, not liking this group or not liking that group, and they're crushed. And we're doing a great disservice to our kid. Let me tell you about this study. In the 1950s, there was a professor named William McGuire. He studied uh, ideas. This is not a Christian study, but this is fascinating. He was a professor at Yale, and he was talking about ideas and wondering whether people could hold on to their ideas in the face of persecution or derision or um, being made fun of or mocked or whatever, or getting out in the world and bringing people or, you know, putting people out uh, and, and whether or not they followed the traditional values of how they grew up in their family. Well, what he did was uh, he remembered that a human body could develop immunity to a disease through the process of inoculation. You guys all know that, measles, mumps, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? And so Professor McGuire wondered whether the same theory would hold true for resisting bad ideas. Now just hold with me. 
You're like, what is he getting at? Listen to this. This is unbelievably amazing. So to test his inoculation theory, what's inoculation? Um, uh, You know, you put a little bit of a strain of something that's not exactly healthy in your body and you develop an immunity to it. Isn't that what you would say uh, was inoculation? Here's what he did. McGuire uh, exposed subjects to a widely accepted claim like this. People should brush their teeth daily. He then exposed them to a counterclaim. Brushing your teeth is bad for you. Now, hold on with me. I know you're like, what is he talking about here? And after preparing test groups with various levels of defense, he he, uh, prepared these groups. People who were not prepared to defend the assumption that brushing your teeth daily uh, uh, is good for you. There was a group that didn't prepare. There was Now, I want you to catch this. Listen, listen. I know, I'm going on and on. But then there was just this test group that just reinforced everything that they already know. And they would say this to the the test group. You know that brushing your teeth is good, right? And then there was this other group that was being warned of an attack. And they would say things like this. You'll be exposed... People are leaving, you know, it's like, oh my gosh. You'll be exposed to a persuasive argument that brushing your teeth is bad. Did you hear that? There was a group that said you're going to be exposed to a persuasive argument. Then there was an inoculation group that said this. Listen, you'll hear an argument stating that brushing your teeth wipes away saliva, which is the tooth's natural protective agent. And then there was a test study called inoculation plus refutation. That's this. Watch. When you hear an argument that brushing your teeth is bad because it wipes away saliva, keep in mind that saliva can't dislodge prepared foods from the teeth. Only a brush can consistently do that. And then there was this final group, inoculation plus refutation plus preparation. It went like this. You know one argument you'll hear to persuade you that brushing your teeth is bad, but you'll be presented with several arguments, and it will be up to you, watch this, to think them through and refute them. Now watch this. In the end, the most effective strategy for people holding on to that they should brush their teeth daily was the last one. Inoculate them, refute it, and prepare them. But I want you to see something that's so mind-blowing, it almost gives me chills. The worst group for keeping the premise throughout the entire process was simply the people who reinforced the idea. You know that brushing your teeth is good, right? And we (laughs) and you're like, what is he talking about? Why did this guy bring this up? Because the least effective strategy was reinforcement of previous preparation. In fact, more people in this test condition believe the false argument that those in the no preparation condition uh, did. Uh, And so what is this telling you? It's this, that people who have been equipped with the truth could easily fall for uh, falsehoods is a stunning result. And the worst way... To navigate a person through the premise that they believe first was simply keep teaching them the same thing without inoculating them to the ideas of the world. I hate to say it because I know what's going to happen here. You're going to push back and that's okay. I'm not arguing for either one, but what I'm trying to say is, I know there's some puzzled looks back there is we want to grow kids in a Christian cocoon. No, I don't even want you to know the word sex. What? If we don't tell them who? You better be talking to your kids about sex God's way. You better be, because if you don't, they'll hear it in locker rooms. They'll look in books. They'll look in magazines. And then you're toast. They're toast. We want to protect them from everything. Christian CD, don't expose them to any ideas. And here's the point. 
you and I and we must teach them the things that they're going to face. You, in other words, you have to relate the Bible, look through the lens of the Bible to the things that they're going to face in daily life. You have to apply it. You can't just say, do, 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 do. It must be applied, and they got to see it in you. You kidding what I'm saying? That's what this test study is saying. Now, I'm not saying don't put them in a Christian school. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is they better learn how to live the Christian life in real world circumstances without mommy and daddy's help. Because at 18 years old, they're going to get a college invite and they're going to go. And that's where the rubber hits the road, man. And you could lose them if you're not doing that. And that's what I want to tell you. We have parents that, oh, oh, well, you better get them prepared for the real world because the real world wants to eat them up and spit them out and ruin their witness and get them off track. So what am I saying? They want to see it in you. Take them along. Take them to the homeless ministry. Take them to the mission trip. Take them to the hard places and the good places and show them and talk to them and think through it. And when they meet people, do this, man. This is number one. Xander was just telling me he was watching a video. You ever thought about this? Let me just give you a few tips that just come to the top of my head. When your kids meet people, make them say hi to them. Look the people in the eye. You, you know what you're raising? You're raising a bunch of spoiled brats when they just ignore people. What does the Lord say? To have compassion on people. How can you have compassion if you're sitting in the corner playing with your video game and you're not meeting the people? You know what we did? I'm not saying this is great, but we made it a game. When we went to a restaurant, you know what we said? I want you to tell me what color the eyes are of the waiter or the waitress. Look them in the eye. Say, how are you doing? Shake their hand. You don't have to be gregarious and outgoing like the parents are. Some of our kids are not gregarious. We sort of are. But you still need to have compassion. Teach them that. Show them how to do it. How about this one? Don't tell them. Oh, man, am I going to get in trouble for this? This one gets me. Oh, honey, when you grow up, you just do anything you want to do. What? How about this? Hey, honey, let's pray right now. Let's pray right now that the Lord would have you do what he wants you to do when you grow up, that he would show you where you want to study and what you should study and then go out and glorify the Lord. Stop saying, what do you want to do? You know what you create when you start doing that? You put the kid at the center of the universe. Now, here's the great part about the Lord. God gives you the desires of your heart. And so the Lord's going to put a desire into some kids for engineering. Great. Go and glorify the Lord through engineering. He's going to make somebody, I don't know how he's going to do this, be a lawyer. And then you can glorify the Lord through being a lawyer. But you could also be something else. And you could glorify, but see, so you're not being mean, but what you're saying to the kid is that you're the center of the universe and God spins around you and you tell God what you want to do. Watch it. Because the Bible says that the kids were made for him. The, uh, God is not made for the kids. Here's one other that I just bugs the crap out of me. Sorry. One time at a men's uh, breakfast, we got in a big argument about this. Because I said to the fun parents, will you quit asking your kid when they come home if they had fun? They're like, what? No, that's obvious. That's what we should do. Why don't you ask them next time when they come, were you a blessing? You have fun. Yeah, it's fun to have fun. God is into fun sometimes. But the bigger and higher place is, were you a blessing? You're you're, look, just little things right there, three little things. You're starting to train your kid into honoring the Lord. And it's a vital thing that's within the family. And for 18 years or 14 years or whatever, there it is. Here's why. You start taking them to places. You start going with them on mission trips. You start bringing them down to the community day and blessing people and talking to people. And all of a sudden, they start seeing 
Wow, the Lord works in these situations and he connects people and he raises people up. And oh, when we run to him, the strong tower, the impact that God can have in a one person's life. We saw that a couple weeks ago or last week, I can't even remember. A couple weeks ago through Aaron's life. You, you get what I'm saying here? I think that's the number one thing. The parents named the kid because the parents had a relationship with the Lord that was real and vital and dynamic. And they uh, knew the thrill the kids did of answered prayer because when they sat at the dinner table and they talked about how the Lord answered the prayer and they knew about the topics such as forgiveness and love and grace and I've beaten a dead horse. You see, why am I beating a dead horse? Because it's hard when you're by yourself and you're 14 years old and you're in the lion's den or you're in the king's court of the enemy. What are you going to do then? And it's up to us to help. And I see a generation of parents that ain't helping. Just got to be honest. But we can help. And it's not what's happened in the past. If that's somebody like you and you're like, man, is he ripping on me today? I'm not ripping on you today. You know why? Because the past is over. All you can do is go forward now and praise the Lord. He'll do it and he'll put your families back together if that's a, that's a problem. What else did he happen? Well, Daniel purposed in his heart that he wouldn't defile himself. You see, it appears that some of the things that he was about ready to eat may have been against kosher law. It may have been against the law, the Levitical law. And so he didn't want to do that. I want you to notice something that's very fascinating to me, and I don't even know if I have a comment about it. But David didn't stand up and say no when they renamed him. Hmm, Daniel, sorry. Daniel didn't stand up and say no when they renamed him. Did you notice that? Hmm, he didn't do that because it wasn't against any law. But now when they set some food out there that was either not kosher or maybe had been uh, sacrificed to idols or something like that, don't exactly know, boom, he put his foot down. But I want you to see how he put his foot down. And boy, am I going to get in trouble for this. He wasn't out there on Facebook reaming King Nebuchadnezzar. He was respectful. Boy, I'm coming to your kitchen now. He didn't go out on Facebook and tell them they were terrible and you're terrible and we're terrible, blah, blah, blah. No, he was very respectful in his dissent. And I want you to see that. I think there needs to be among the Christian church much more kindness and respect for people who don't believe like you do. And I know I'm going to get pushed back on that. But man, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, I don't see how you can push back. He was respectful. He purposed in his heart. That's the next thing that you can do to stand in the, uh, in the world or the, the enemy's uh, areas. You purpose in your heart. You're not crossing that line. And you pray about it. And you ask the Lord to give you strength and to keep you there and to do this. On top of all of that, Lord, here's what you pray as a kid, and you help the kids do this. Lord, help me to purpose in my heart. I'm not going to cross that line. I'm not going to have sex before marriage. I'm going to get married first. I'm not going to fool around in the hookup culture. I'm going to... I'm go you have them purpose in your heart, and then you pray, and he prays, and she prays. Lord, bring me a bunch of friends that think like me. So even though you're in the, 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 the king's domain, you at least have the three friends or the couple friends that think like you. Man, where do you get your counsel? Who do you hang out with? It's a big deal. Now, again, I don't think you should be in a Christian cocoon. You need to be out there, in my opinion, taking people to lunch, getting to know the stories of people who don't think like you. Otherwise, how are they ever going to hear the gospel? How? But the people you take counsel for, they're like-minded. We're like this, and we walk together. So cool. That's what was so great about Daniel. 
He had parents that showed them a vital, dynamic relationship. He purposed in his heart. I'm sure the parents had prayed about that with him for many years so that when he got on uh, by himself, he could stand in times of trouble. And when it came, uh, he, he had parents who were respectful and loving to people who didn't believe like they did, and he surrounded himself with friends. And you know one other thing the parents did an amazing job of, because we're going to see it later on, is they developed a prayer life with that kid. There was one thing Daniel wasn't going to miss, and that was his time of being with the Lord. The number one thing I think I would start with if I was a parent and never instituted any of this stuff is get my kids somehow, some way, maybe bring them along with you to have a devotion. I really think so. To have a devotion, whether it be five minutes or seven minutes or 70 minutes, whatever it is, be people who are consistently going through the word of God and not just reading it and going blah, but expressing it to you and talking about it and sharing it together. Amen? Amen. And look what can happen. Now, God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. I know that the Bible and Jesus himself says, you're going to suffer tribulation in this world, and you are. And by the way, there's going to be people who hate you because you believe in a risen Savior, Jesus. They won't like you. But I'm tired of people going around just saying, oh, you know, to the kids, Oh, this is going to be so boring. This, uh, uh, you're going to have to live like this, and you know, you're going to have to be like me. What? No, listen, you're going to gain favor in the sight of some people because the Bible tells us this. To some people, the aroma of Christ is death. And when they smell death, they're going to strike back. But to others, that aroma from your life is going to bring them to Christ. And you're going to come to a place, maybe in your job you're being persecuted. Maybe, maybe. But you know what? You keep it up because I guarantee you someday, you know what the boss is going to do? When they lose somebody or somebody dies or the wife leaves or whatever it is, guess what they're going to do? They're going to hunt you down and say, what is it that you have that I don't have? And now you got them to share the love of Christ with the person who's now ready to do it, right? That's it. And so here you go. Uh, I fear, my Lord, the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse? I read this before. Look in verse 11. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over these four, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat, water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Now, I don't want to be too critical, but this ain't about a diet. You can go... Read the books if you want and follow the diet. But this ain't about the diet that works or doesn't work. It does not even have anything to do with that. What he's saying here is, I trusted, we trusted in the Lord, and the Lord granted us favor before these people. Their features appeared better and fatter. I don't need that. But anyway, thus, the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. By the way, the word is seed-bearing things, so it could even mean grains and some other things, but that's for another day. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all vision and dreams. Time out real quick. Two of my kids went to the <laughs> public school. Two of them went to the Christian school. Different kids, different situations, the Lord led it. But here's what I wanted to tell you. When they started to get into biology and evolution, you know what I would tell my kids? Hey, let's learn what they teach, and we'll get A's or B's for, for some of them. <laughs> and then you're going to come home and learn what the Lord says about it. Because whatever you do, we would say, the Bible says, do as unto the Lord. So if you're going to be a student, try your best, do your best, learn the information. 
That's part of this process where you're being put in a certain place and you got to know the difference between what's biblical and not biblical. That's a training period because you're going to go out on your own. Get it? So learn the information, I used to tell them. Learn the information, go over there, get the 100%. When you come home tonight, we'll go through the scriptures and we'll talk about how God is a creation God, not an evolution God. And we'll learn the true thing and the right thing. That's because they, the Lord was just leading them into a public school. <laughs> Time out, by the way. This church started in a lot of ways because of the public school. I know we have Christian school people here. I'm just saying how the Lord used it. The Lord started bringing our kids' friends to the Bible study because the parents would say, you want to do what on Friday night? And then the parents would come. So what I'm trying to tell you is the Lord can use anything and does use anything. All right, last thing. Now, at the end of the days, verse 18, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them not one time, not two times, but ten times better than these people who dabbled in the occult. All the magicians, the astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. King Cyrus now, we'll get into it later, I won't explain it now, is a, represents a different kingdom. That's not Babylonian. So what happened? You have to come back next week and find out. Let's pray. <clears throat> well, Lord, <laughs> amazing how a book so old can be so relevant for today. Boy, your spirit takes the word of God and the child of God and helps us live these things out, and we're thankful for it. It's like surgery. It's a double-edged sword. It does things to us that can't be done anywhere else or in any place else. So we thank you for your word, and we ask that you bless it to our hearts, and Lord, help us to stand in our workplaces our extracurricular places, and then help us be people who pass it on to our children so that they can stand when they go out in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.